We have been hearing a lot about water conservation lately. The city's chief engineer, Ernie Lau, asked customers to reduce their usage by 10% earlier this year, but we fell short of that. Next week, the Board of Water Supply kicks off its Detect a Leak campaign. We talked to spokeswoman Kathleen Pahinui about the most common household problems. A running toilet is a very common problem in most households. What happens is the flapper gets hard and doesn't close quite as well. So if you hear that kind of little whirring noise in your in your bathroom by your toilet, it means your toilet's not completely filling up and the water keeps coming in, which is a huge waste. You can waste a ton of water and a lot of money on a toilet leak like that. So we have a program that we're doing again in partnership with Hard Hardware Hawaii, where you know you can go get the information from them and get a dye tablets, and then they'll help you choose the correct flapper for your toilet. Once you've determined if you have a leak in your toilet, and super simple, you throw the dye tablet in your tank and wait a little bit. And if there's blue water in your toilet bowl, and, and don't flush the toilet, obviously, but if there's blue water starts showing up in your toilet bowl, it means you have a leak. It means the water's constantly flowing. It's constantly filling up. And then just go down. You know, you can remove the old one. Very simple to do. We have instructions on our website, borderwatersupply.com under our conservation tab there uh, and it will show you how to do it and you can actually replace it yourself it only takes a few minutes well so those types of simple things can be a fix and it'll help protect our resource absolutely the other thing is too if you uh, have you know you have a nice little lawn or grassy area look for areas in your lawn that seem like that might be damp all the time or if you're like me in your lawn which is not even a lawn it's weeds uh, seems unusually green in an area. That means you might have a leak if you have underground irrigation or pipes, uh, you know, pipes running through your yard. Then go call a plumber and have them come in and take a look for it. Most houses and condos have their own internal shutoff valves, so you don't need to call the border water supply to come and turn off the water. You should have this valve in your, uh, it's usually outside on your property and you just turn off that valve, the plumber will turn it off and then he can see and check to see if there's water going through the pipes and stuff like that. So that's a huge area where people can save money. Leaky faucets, you know, if your faucet's leaking, get it fixed right away because that adds up over time. And it's amazing. People don't realize these they're little things like, oh, it's not a big deal, but it is a big deal, both in terms of, of our resource Every drop of water is literally precious, and the more we waste, the, the harder it is then for us to necessarily restore that. We've had a very dry winter, as we all know, one of the driest that anyone can remember. That means we're not getting enough water that's going to go back into the aquifer ultimately. So now's the time to really think about how you're using water, and if you have any little what we call sneaky water wasters, such as a leaky toilet or, or faucet. And again, it's also a matter of your bottom line. It saves money. I had a, I had both a running toilet and a leak on my property separate times, and both times after I fixed it, you know. And actually, that's the other good way to find out if you have water is check your water bill every month. If you see a sudden spike in your water bill, give us a call, and, and we'll work with you to see to help you determine where that leak might be because that's a sure indicator there's a problem, especially if you know your water if you haven't installed a swimming pool and you're using water the same as you used it the previous month, you probably have a leak somewhere. And that's how I discovered uh, one of my leaks. And then on the toilet leak, it was just running. So 
changed out the flapper, I ended up saving several dollars a month. And so it's not insignificant. Well, true confessions, I got a call from the Board of Water Supply letting me know that they were concerned because my usage spiked. And, you know, we're pretty good. Our family's pretty good about using, you know, water. We have uh, catchment, uh, you know, on our gutters. We have those water tanks. But (laughs) the gentleman who called and left a message saying, oh, we stopped by the property and your meter seems to be fine, but uh, we just want you to know we're concerned about the usage. And I've never had a call from the board of water supply, so it really kind of uh, stressed me out. And so I checked with my family, and I found out that someone left the hose on overnight. So that's why our water bill spiked. And while my mango tree is happy, I'm sure Ernie Lau is not. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for you. Uh, good for you. But, like, yeah, we will reach out if we see abnormally high water use. Uh, you know, we, uh, we, we have a little flags in our system that will flag it. And then, yeah, you may get a call from our customer service team saying, hey, have you done something different this month? And then we'll, again, work with you to try and determine where that leak is. And then so you can call a plumber and have it fixed. And most of the time when I had the leaky pipe in my yard and the toilet, well, the toilet one just cost the cost of a flapper. That wasn't, that was, I think, maybe 10 bucks. But even the plumbing one wasn't horrible. It was a, you know, it was a few hundred dollars. But it was worth it because at the same time I had to move my uh, water shutoff valve on my property, which was kind of old and rusty. I had to move it and put it right next to the house, next to the hose bib. So it's really easy. Now it's a lever that I can move back and forth. So it's super easy to turn off. So it worked out. It was actually a good thing. It turned out to be a good thing. But my water use like yours is very low. So my water had literally doubled in one month. So I knew there was a problem. But other things that too, when you're washing your car, put a, use a bucket and a sponge. Don't leave the hose running or put a nozzle on the hose. And those who really love watering their lawn we're asking please cut back if you're watering four times a week please cut back to two times a week and and then please don't water your lawn between nine and five because at that point the water's just evaporating and you're literally burning your grass because it acts as a magnifier so we ask people to water before 9 a.m or after 5 p.m our lawns don't need a ton of water so we would recommend just watering for a few minutes and that should be enough to keep it going and looking decent. And you have asked the large water users, you know, the schools, the hotels, the hospitals, to cut down where they can. Yeah, we've met with people in all of the various industries, including the visitor industry, and uh, we're going to be working on some pilot projects with uh, folks in that industry. We talked with the Department of Parks and Recs. I'm pleased to report that we've been working with them to look for leaks in their parks. And so far, everything's looking pretty good. But we've met with DOE and and all the big agencies. So if you see anything, what we're asking people, please don't hesitate to call 808-748-5041 and report a water waste complaint. And we will get on it and make sure that whoever that is takes care of it immediately. We've gotten good response from our partners in the government. We know that with all the sprinklers and and large blocks of grass and stuff, they're very visible. So they said, don't worry, we're on it. And, and we just said, you know, maybe you got to let things go a little brown for now. As much as we don't like that, because we like to be thinking of green, 
right now it's more important to protect our water resources. The uh, golf courses have been uh, cutting back on irrigation. Yes. I know yeah. the military told us that uh, they put out a call to reduce the use in places like that. But explain uh, to our listeners, I mean, if the military reduces their usage, does that help us on our end? Well, what it does, it helps our resource. The Commission on Water Resource Management allocates how much water we're able to use. They also allocate to the military how much water they can use. It's called the sustainable yield. So they take that sustainable yield and they decide how much water we all get to use out of that sustainable yield to manage the resource so, it, so we don't over pump. So if the military is cutting back and on irrigation and all that other good stuff, that doesn't mean we get that allocation. So say they cut back by a million gallons a day, the Board of Water Supply doesn't get to pick up that million gallons a day. But what it does mean, we our resource is better managed, it, it's, it's not being depleted, over, overly pumped, especially since, as I mentioned before, it's been so dry. So it's a good thing for everybody. You know, it, it's a balancing act, as we all say, but then that just makes it better for everybody uh, if we're all cutting back. And I'm happy to hear that the military is. And yes, we've been in touch. A lot of the golf courses, especially Everside, use recycled water or they have their own wells that they use. And we are working with them. We are contacting them to talk to them about also cutting back and helping them monitor their water use as well. And we did send out 600 letters to the top 200 water users in each of the three systems that have been affected. So we are monitoring that. We did reach out to everybody. And then, as I mentioned before, we've had a number of one-on-one meetings with various large agencies, city, state, and the private sector. Uh, that was Kathleen Pahinui, spokeswoman with the Board of Water Supply, talking about the latest push to get Oahu residents to voluntarily cut back on water use. Uh, they're asking that uh, you help conserve our precious resource before we have to get to the point of mandatory water restrictions. And full disclosure, the Board of Water Supply is an underwriter of HPR. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honua Ola Bioenergy on Hawaii Island, committed to a sustainable, clean energy future, providing renewable energy 24-7 using locally grown and harvested biomass. And joining us for today's Reality Check is Marcel Honoré. He's here to talk about transit-oriented development. Good morning, Marcel. Good morning, Catherine. Good to be here. Yeah, so you started out your story talking to a family that is uh, selling its property along the rail route. Right, so today is the the latest installment in our new series, uh, Banking on Rail, which basically looks at all the various parcels along the last four miles of rail that have where construction has yet to be started. And yeah, today's story really takes an in-depth look at Kalihi, and what's been going on there. And uh, it starts out with just kind of a an anecdote about um, a business that is over on the western edge of Dillingham, almost across from OCCC, and, and a, a really popular uh, hairstyling business that's taken off in the last few years. But it's probably going to have to leave uh, because the, the owner is selling. Um, other than that business, which has done well, uh, they haven't been able to retain other tenants, and um, so it's just financially not working out 
for that property owner who's who said that that property that building and the the parcel is it's been in their their uh, family going back to the the great Mahele, you know so uh and and one of the key reasons he said he was hoping that rail would would make it there in time for a lot of the revitalization and you know redevelopment uh but it just for as we were all very aware you know rail is uh, about 10 years behind at this point so it was just a yeah an example of of kind of a little snapshot of what's been happening in Kalihi so you've got a small landowner but you also have a large landowners like Kamehameha schools who who uh, owns a uh, quite a bit of acreage along that route Right. So in the uh, Kalihi Palama neighborhood alone, Kamehameha Schools owns about 105 acres of land, and they have very, very big plans to redevelop, um, particularly in the Kapalama area, right, which is very heavily industrial right now. Um, but they, they're looking to add four to 5,000 new residential units, 150,000 new square feet of commercial, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And th- these are plans that uh, have been on the books for a little while, and they're they're moving forward as their leases, uh, their long-term leases, right, start to expire. Um, you know, what's, what's notable about that, as I said, we were moving forward with this, this major redevelopment plan along the canal there with or without rail. And they're, they're basically integrating rail in uh, because, it's, because it's happening. So, yeah. And that area, Kalihi, it's long overdue for, um, you know, a makeover. I mean, long overdue. Right. So city leaders have, have really flagged uh, Kalihi as one of the, the main areas of, you know, quote unquote, transformative potential for rail once it gets there to really help spur uh, redevelopment of some of those those shabbier areas there. But it's just there's there's stuff happening in the background uh, that, you know, people are, are talking about long term plans and even smaller plans, not just the big giant, you know, Kamehameha school type plans, but kind of these smaller things where you can take a, you know, an acre, a building there and redevelop it, redevelop it and put, you know, some some storefronts on the, the bottom and some residential on top. They're saying Kalihi really has that potential to just take off. But it's just, frankly, it's kind of frustrating because rail is, is still too far on the horizon and there's still too many uncertainties associated with the project. Yeah, so folks are saying, hurry up already. You know, people are barely hanging on in some instances and and those that have deep pockets, uh, you know, can't afford to wait and, and fire it off. But I know that's a, an area that lots of people are hoping there'll be um, a lot of affordable housing. Right, right. It's it's one of the key areas. It just we need to see progress. All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Marcel. Looking forward to other stories. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Honoré with today's reality check from Honolulu Civil Beat. To read the full story and check out the series, go to civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Arts, Homa Nights, offering entertainment, art experiences, beverages, and bites on Friday and Saturday evenings. Hours and admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. All right, and you know, this month, Hawaii's amateur radio operators, or HAMS, will participate in a statewide emergency communications drill. The exercise will stimulate a four-day period of catastrophic wind and rain 
that knocks out power, internet, and cell towers from Kauai to the Big Island. It's an opportunity for the group Amateur Radio Emergency Service Hawaii to train members and non-members in radio operations and procedures. The conversations uh, producers Russell Subiano and Lian Song took a trip out to Kapolei to meet up with longtime amateur radio operator Stacy Holbrook to learn more about Hawaii's hams. Hey, Stacy, how's it going? Oh, good, y'all. All right, I'm Russell. Oh, nice to meet you. Nice to you. Come on in, leave your shoes on. Okay, thank you. So, this side is where I do most of my local talking. Okay. They're talking around the world right now on the top radio. This radio over here is not hooked up right now to an antenna, the big one, but that's a worldwide radio. And then all the little handhelds are pretty much local. The term that I hear all the time is ham radio. Yeah. Is, is that an accurate term? It is. I mean, it's a kind of a slang name. Uh -huh. uh, we're amateur radios operators. Yeah. So yeah, amateur radio or hams as most people recognize uh -huh. and call us. So we do all volunteer work. We help hospital, EOCs, Red Cross, community shelters, police departments, fire departments, whoever need us to help with communications. Because we can literally take that radio, it's portable, and then hook it up to an antenna and take it in our car and use power in our car or a solar panel or a battery to talk. We're not restricted to big towers or, yeah. you know, like cell towers or the towers up on Makakilo, that kind of stuff. Have you actually had like real life, had to use your experience with ham radio to help? Well, when they had Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico and mm -hmm. stuff, uh, that was a devastation down there and ham radio was a big play down there for them. And we would help pass traffic from a station in Maui to try to find family. Oh, wow. And it was successful to do that. And it's the same thing with the Windling system here. It looks just like Gmail and stuff. Windling? It, yeah, it, it hooks up to a cable into my radio here. And then okay. without the internet, we can send email. We can send forms, weather forms, medical forms from hospitals. We can send a, a list of all the people that may be in a shelter to the EOC. I can download satellite images from weather services from the mainland. In this day and age where we have a big reliance on the internet, on cell phones, with your radio setup, you have the ability to send information from your computer over the radio waves yeah. and also bring information back to right. How many amateur radio operators do you think there are in the state? There in Hawaii, there's 3,824 licensed operators. Now, how many of those are actively involved? I'm trying to figure that number out. In the leeward side, I'm working the exercise for the leeward side, Eva Beach, Kapolei, Makakilo. There's about 354 on the books. And there's over 770,000 in the United States alone. Can anybody be an amateur radio operator if you go and buy a radio setup? Is that all you need? or no, you need a license. We offer license classes throughout the year, and we offer testing for the FCC because the FCC is the only one that can license them. So there's no charge for the class if you want to take the class unless you want to buy the books, you know, to study. And all the test questions that you would see on the test, are, FCC makes them known. They're out there. And the answers. So you can sit on your computer at night and just click through all the questions and answers and take the test as many times as you want. And then you'll see those questions on the exam. You just don't know which ones you'll see. You'll learn a lot by doing that, but you'll learn even more by once you get your license and actively talking to people and figuring it out. 
by removing all the barriers to becoming an operator, it seems like the FCC wants people to be able to be an operator. Yeah, the purpose of an amateur radio operator is really to help your community and provide emergency services. And that's a big key for the AWRL, which is our national organization, and the FCC. So they, they, they license that. There used to be a Morse code requirement, but they, they took that away in order to help grow the community. Were you able to get another operator yep, to I talk to? Yeah, I got one on okay. standby. He's downtown in Waikiki. Okay. WH6DWFK860W. Uh, Hey Todd, how you doing? Uh, how's the weather down there? It's been raining here this morning in uh, in Kapolei. Uh, and then, uh, what do you plan on doing for the uh, upcoming exercise and emergency preparedness? Okay, thanks Todd, I appreciate you uh, talking to me about what your plans are. Okay, it's 6 OBL. I'll say 73 in Aloha to you, I'll call you later. Okay, so that was talking local. Do people know to listen in? I mean, are these frequencies locked and private? Like, you know, like a room that you need a key to, or is it pretty much public? No, they're all public. So as an amateur radio operator, we can't do anything that can't be decoded. We can't send private messages. So everything that we do is open source. So anybody can have a scanner and listen in. So, like this is a scanner here. I, I can pick up anything from Taco Bell drive-through through ham radio operators. So, even the, the email, another ham can read your email, even though it's not sent to you. Because yeah. we have to be able to make sure we're using the frequencies for their proper allocation. So we can't go on and, and start talking about overthrow the government. We can't start talking about selling, you know, selling items that are not ham radio related or doing other illegal stuff on there. Yeah. So other we police ourselves. Okay. So um, there's no yeah. dark web link. Not that I'm aware of. No dark radio. Yeah. Not that I'm aware of. I was wondering um, about etiquette too. I am assuming that you gotta keep it clean and it sounds like you wanna keep your messages short too. It's a topic that's talked about a lot in ham radio. We don't talk we're usually religion and politics mm -hmm. on the radio. Now that's not written anywhere in the FCC rules, which we go by, but in the amateur radio rules, it's written. So it's not a hard rule, but nobody really talks about politics and religion. Yeah. You're not supposed to use profanity, mm -hmm. but it doesn't find what profanity is. Mm -hmm. So we have to police ourselves. So we try to keep our messages short and to the point, mm -hmm. unless we're just on there, what we call rag chewing, just talking, mm -hmm. talking story. You have the capability to talk to somebody elsewhere in the world? Yeah. KH6OWL doing an interview. I'd like to get a uh, check on how many stations are on uh, 91. KH6OWL from Honolulu, Hawaii. They like when you say Hawaii because you know, there's not a lot of operators that talk. Pennsylvania. 
WCX or He's Illinois. South Arkansas. Arkansas. Yep, that's it. So far, that's the only ones that came back. Texas, Arkansas, Pennsylvania. I talked to a guy in Great Britain right before you guys came in. I talked to, on actually on the, the Windlink without internet, I talked, I mean, emailing a guy in Poland back and forth about what's going on in, in, his, in Ukraine and the refugees that he sees. So you just mentioned Great Britain and Poland. How big is amateur radio internationally? It's every state, every country, and then we have agreements with a lot of countries to be able to talk into those countries, and we have agreements with a lot of countries, not every country, to be able to pass third-party traffic to another family member or something in that country too. Mm -hmm. But it's all over the world. So this interest, I'm hearing more male voices, but what's the <laughs> breakdown? Is there more like half uh, no, there's very few what we call YLs, young ladies. YLs? Um, that's a Morse code term. Okay, oh, uh, Morse code. So when you're sending Morse code, instead of writing out young lady or my wife, you just say YL. Oh, cool. Uh, so there's a lot of Q codes. But there's very few women. I don't know why. I was monitoring the radio the other day, and there was two ladies talking. I was shocked. And we're not in any way taking the place of normal communications and what other people do. We're just there as a backup. If you need us, we know how to do it. Because in, in, uh, in Puerto Rico, they had some sat phones, but they were so overcrowded, they just jammed the sat phone lines, and there wasn't enough sat phones. No internet, so. We definitely live in a place where a natural disaster could happen at any time. Yeah, and a lot of people just don't, don't think about it because we're so used to our things, and it's never really gonna happen to us, and the government's gonna come to our rescue. And hey, I'm, I'm all for hey, the government's going to come and rescue us. They, they eventually will. But you got I think you got to plan for that time in between there. Now FEMA's telling us it used to be, what, three days of supplies of food and water? Now it's 14. You know, I just think you got to have a plan. And a communications is just a small part of that, but it's an important part of that because if you don't have information, it makes you stress more. And Stacy, you're just doing this all the I mean, you love this? You're a volunteer? Uh, we're volunteers. And people volunteer because they like what they do, right? They want to help other people, and that's what amateur radio is all about. Yeah, it's fun, and, and when you're not doing emergency stuff, you can have a lot of blast talking to the base station, talking through satellites, you know, seeing how far you can reach out. But the big aspect of it is emergency preparedness and making sure we support our community and our state. That was amateur radio operator Stacy Holbrook talking with HPR's Russell Subiano and Lillian Song. We'll have links to more information on participating in the April 16th statewide amateur radio operator training exercise on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Check it later today. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Symphony Orchestra's Hapa Symphony Series, presenting singer and composer Robert Casimero in a performance featuring his music and more April 22nd at Hawaii Theater. Tickets at myhso.org. Well, next up on the conversation, we are revisiting a story about a real fish out of water, or to be more specific, a real squid in space. That's right. Last summer, scientists sent over 100 Hawaiian bobtail squid up on a rocket ship and into orbit. Why? Well, that was our first question, too. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with lead researcher Jamie Foster about what became of Hawaii's littlest astronauts. 
So one of the big questions we have uh, and why we're even doing this research is we really want to understand how microbes communicate, interact with animal tissues. And that's been a focus of my career for 30 years, ever since I was a graduate student at the University of Hawaii. And the reason we've chosen the bobtail squid from Hawaii as, a, as the perfect model is because there's a single microbe that's living inside a special organ inside the squid that allows the squid to glow in the dark. And that unique relationship between a single bacterium and its host really gives you the freedom to do a lot of different experiments uh, in the sense that if you're trying to understand what the bacterium is doing to the animal and how it's talking to you, you don't have to you know, fuss through a thousands or hundreds of different species that are interacting like our bodies. We have thousands of different taxa and microbes interacting and communicating. And so that gets very noisy. And when you add stress to that conversation, that's when things can go a little haywire. And what we really want to do is protect astronauts as they work and live and, and also the future tourists. We have tourists going up now. And if they want to do long-term experiments or be up there for potentially months uh, or maybe even years, if you're talking about a trip to Mars, then we really need to know what stress does to that conversation between microbes and animals because microbes, we rely on microbes for health. So that's kind of why we're sending them to space is because we are using the squid as a little model to really understand what is health in the space environment. How do you maintain um, a healthy relationship with a bacterium when you have uh, no gravity and potential radiation and all of these additional stressors that you've never seen as if you're a squid or a microbe have seen before living on Earth? I think for many people, just the notion of sending squid into space invites their imagination in so many ways. What kind of red tape is involved in getting something or formulating an experiment in space? It definitely took me a couple years in order to get the funding, actually maybe three years if you think of starting with the idea, getting it funded, getting a partner, what we call an implementation partner. They're the ones that know everything about the hardware. So you're working with their engineers to design your hardware and then ultimately finding a ride on a rocket and getting into space. And all of that will probably take you anywhere from two to three years, uh, depending on the complexity of your experiment. And squid, being an aquatic organism, uh, need a little bit more attention than, say, uh, the average bacterium. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Do they have little astronaut helmets? Yes, we size them all with spacesuits. No, um, they're in a, we, we call it a little aquarium tank. They are, it's kind of a glorified um, uh, bag, but there is a special tank with pumps and to make sure they're getting enough oxygen, to make sure they're getting um, the water changes that they need as, as the microbes come in and as the uh, experiment progresses. So they're kind of in a floating aquarium tank for lack of a better term. That's actually what we call it, the aquarium, but it's soft and it just be, it's a little malleable and it doesn't have hard edges just to make things a little bit easier to pack into a little bit of flight hardware. And the squid are small, just to, just to give you a, a sense of scale. They're about the size of a fruit fly when they're, when they're born. So they are um, very tiny. And uh, so that's why we, it's also great to work with them because you can put a lot of them in these little space aquarium 
And just so that I make sure that I'm clear on the basics, how long were the squid actually in space? Yeah, that was actually not as long as you, they were physically in space for a few weeks. But the actual experiment only took about 12 hours for the actual experiment. But then the launching and what we call activation uh, of the experiment uh, only ha happened a few hours. So within a day, the whole experiment was over. Because what, one other advantage of using the Hawaiian bobtail squid is that the bacteria and the animals talk really fast. <laughs> There's a really fast conversation that's happening um, during the onset of the symbiosis. And so there are markers like every two hours, you can. there's something new happening, almost every hour really. There's something new happening that you can capture. As I mentioned before, you're kind of trying to capture all these RNA molecules like a snapshot in time by, by taking and, and taking these little looks into the molecular biology of the squid every hour practically during the onset of this relationship, this symbiosis. You know, another thing to keep in mind when you're designing a space flight experiment, keep it simple. Keep it very simple because you have a lot of variabilities that you can't control. And so um, having a short timeline, making sure the squid were alive and healthy and happy, you know, during this, during the sitting on the launch pad kind of thing, we wanted to keep it short. So that's why the whole experiment really took less than a day. Um, but the animals were up there after the experiment ended um, uh, and they were um, brought back two weeks later. And this may be the, I don't know, this might yeah, be I know. an indelicate question, but... <laughs> I know this. I know what's coming. What? Uh, how many of the? How many of the squid survived? Well, they all survived launch into space, but the experiment uh, itself ends with their sacrifice, um, where they end up in a preservative. It's it's called RNA later, and it's a preserve. It's a salt solution, really, where you're preserving all their tissues so that you can get at these snapshots. So we're kind of flash freezing in a way these animals so that we can capture what's happening into their bodies. So I know that that's difficult for a lot of people to know that the animals didn't come back in one, you know, alive, but this is kind of why we do these experiments so that we can do them on, on uh, these little model systems so that we can really have a better handle of what's happening then to the people. Uh, sacrifice for science. That was Jamie Foster, professor of microbiology and cell science at the University of Florida. She spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote about what we can learn from the little Hawaiian bobtail squid's journey into space. You can listen to the full interview with Foster's early findings on our website at hawaiipublicradio.org.